and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Dr. Christina Lane back to the program for the last of a two-part interview. Dr. Lane is a professor of film studies and the chair of the Cinematic Arts Department at the University of Miami. Her most recent work, which we'll continue talking about today, is Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, The Forgotten Woman Behind Hitchcock, which is now in paperback from Chicago Review Press. So, Dr. Lane, when we left off last time, we had just finished talking about Foreign Correspondent, and then up next in Joan Harrison's contributions um, in screenwriting is Suspicion. And this movie seemed to take a lot out of everybody in the writing phase. It was not an easy process. That's right. Suspicion really did present a lot of problems because, you know, there was the casting of Cary Grant, and Cary Grant was a really huge get in terms of a star property. The film was made at RKO, so Alfred Hitchcock was able to kind of take a break away from David O. Selznick, with whom he was working, and he'd come over from Britain to work with David O. Selznick, but had found that to be a bit of a smothering relationship. So at RKO, here he is, he's got Cary Grant, he and his team, Alma Revel and Joan Harrison, and also the other screenwriter working on that with Sam Rafelson. So they are trying to adapt the novel by Francis Isles called Before the Fact. And the novel had done really quite well, but they realized that in the novel, and it's not that different from what we were speaking about last time with Rebecca, you had this husband that was rather villainous. And he was being played by Cary Grant. He himself did not want to play a bad guy or a killer. And RKO, his studio, did not want him to go against his image as a romantic comedy, fun-loving kind of playboy. And so the studio didn't want him to play a villain either. The female character, the female protagonist, is being played again by Joan Fontaine. So she's kind of bringing this kind of Rebecca-esque character in into the film. But The adaptation of that was really quite difficult. And there was a back and forth. In fact, there really wasn't a sense of how the film would be ended, even as they were writing the script and even as they were in production. So they were writing, I think there were five different endings that were written as they tried to juggle how they would manage Cary Grant's character and whether he would kind of confess you know, that he just kind of how bad he was, what how bad of a guy he was at the end of the film and whether he would wind up with Joan Fontaine, whether they would wind up as a happy couple at the end or whether there would be something of a tragic ending. So this was all really quite difficult. And, you know, at the end, it was actually handled on the editing table, so to speak, where Alma Revel kind of came up with a solution on the editing table after Joan Harrison had something of an epiphany of how they could bring several scenes all together. But very difficult. I mean, I think that some people watch the film now and they find the ending to be really abrupt, you know, with the car making a U-turn and we're supposed to buy at the end of the film, that the couple will indeed find a way to be happy. But given all the production problems, I think the film actually holds it pretty well. Well, and it's a movie many count as among their their favorite Hitchcock films and their favorite films altogether. And to know that it had this difficulty in its birthing process is is really fascinating. It is. And you you wonder if, you know, if filmmakers like Hitchcock and, and Joan Harrison, you know, and that team, 
they, I don't think they ever expected, you know, for films to be living on 80 years later. Mm -hmm. So for us to be rewatching them and rewatching them. So they thought that a film might, you know, might be seen one year, two years later, but definitely not have the scrutiny. Right. So I think that it makes sense that we continue to like and love these movies. Now, of course, World War II has just begun at this point, and we have three British subjects living in the United States while their country is under attack. What were their uh, feelings and approaches to supporting their, their homeland during the early part of World War II? You know, so Hitchcock has received a lot of attention about this, and I wanted to find out about Joan Harrison's own experiences of World War II and also her feelings and her approach to the war. It's been discussed that while Hitchcock was certainly criticized at the time for, say, quote-unquote, abandoning his country to come to America and not doing more for the war, the truth is that behind the scenes he was doing a great deal for the cause, for the war cause. And he did for many years, like into the 1940s, in terms of supporting both Britain and supporting the war effort. And he also, you know, he snuck back into London and then over to actually Surrey, where he had his mother protected, right, in, in his own cottage. He was very concerned about his mother, and he tried to bring her to the United States, but she refused to come. So he was really worried about his own family and made a very difficult journey back during the final stages of foreign correspondent. What I found out, and I did this through a lot of records tracing that was pretty difficult to do, is that Joan Harrison made that trip as well. So she accompanied Hitchcock, and it was just the two of them, back to London. And she that was kind of the last time that she saw her father, because he ended up passing away during the war. And it was the last time that she would see her family, her mother and her sister, for about eight years because of the difficulties of, of going back and forth. But she also was in meetings about how they could make films and do support for the war. And also how they could, I think they stopped off in Canada on the way back and they signed papers to try to help British orphans. So there's a lot of documentation that was never seen, even by Joan Harrison's own family, in terms of her commitment, kind of her political commitment. And then I did find that she just went through a great deal of kind of consciousness raising in the early 1940s as she met a lot of exiles and European exiles and people who were, you know, kind of fighting for their lives in Los Angeles as they were trying to get back onto their feet, having left Europe because of the war. So she ends up, I think, in terms of her own filmmaking, incorporating, again, this is kind of cultural politics, but incorporating a lot of what she had learned about fascism, you know, and the impact of the Nazis into her own work. Did this precarious nature of the world and, and feeling perhaps a little bit of her mortality push her toward going out on her own and leaving the, the rebel Hitchcock nest? You're probably right. I'm sure that it did. And interestingly enough, right, she leaves fall of 1941 is when she makes her decision that uh, she's kind of just done enough. She feels that the, the stories that Hitchcock is telling, she's told them and she has her own stories to tell and she wants to prove that she can make it on her own. And she feels that a lot of people in the industry see her as writing 
Hitchcock's coattails. So she does have a lot to prove, but you're right. She probably also felt that, you know, in, in the world that she was living, she probably did feel precarious and that she wanted to step out and take some risks. Interestingly enough, you know, she leaves just as saboteurs kind of the, the drafts of the screenplay are close enough that she feels that she can leave that behind. I believe that she signs her contract with MGM and the very first day that she starts or is supposed to start is actually the day that Pearl Harbor is bombed. I think, you know, it's on a Sunday and she's meant to start on a Monday. So she must have felt even more precarious at that point as she's trying to start it alone. Goodness, I know there was a lot of fear on the West Coast of possible Japanese attacks directly following Pearl Harbor. What did that do to movie production at that time? People were like looking up into the skies, worried that that they themselves would be impacted. And so believe that there this in early December for a couple of weeks, there were some stalls or some some slowdowns, but very quickly everything went back into action. So production continued. And then, of course, you know, the kind of the machine of everything picked up and the idea that the industry really needed to kind of go full steam in support of, of the war and moving into selling war bonds and movie stars really getting out there on the front of, of the war effort. That's what kicked in even by late December and, and, and early January of 1942. Now, in these early efforts, after going out on her own, she's listed as an associate producer, even though she's the, the lead on these films. Was that typical in Hollywood or was it because she was a woman, she was given a lesser title? It was definitely the double standard of gender. It was not typical given what she had, which was, you know, she was adapting this book by Cornell Woolridge, Phantom Lady, and Universal was giving her kind of carte blanche to do what she wanted. She was producing with Robert Siodmak. So in terms of her role, she was a producer and the only person above her was the executive producer. So she should not have been listed. If you see the card come up as Phantom Lady is, is running, you'll see associate producer Joan Harrison. And there's just no card, you know, no title for a producer, which must have just been a real slap in the face for her. And so, you know, beyond that, she insisted on a producer credit in her contract. Well, I'm certainly glad you used Phantom Lady for the title of your book instead of Ride the Pink Horse, one of her later efforts. <laughs> right. right. That is that is a strange title for sure. And Phantom Lady really fits, you know, because in her time, you know, as she was coming up through her first couple of films, she was a huge deal. She was publicized and promoted across the country. She was in Time magazine. She was, you know, on, on the pages of every fan magazine. And within Hollywood, she was in the middle of it. You know, she was on certain committees of the Academy of the Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. So she was really in the thick of things. But after that, that she became something of a shadow, you know, and we've really lost our sense of film history. And that's why, you know, obviously that's why I've written the book and tried to just give a sense of how powerful she was. There were three women producers in the studio system in the 1940s. So she was one of three. And really, actually, from the 1930s through the 1960s, there were only three women producers and she was one of three. Now, in the movie Phantom Lady itself, it's a wonderful noir film and just some fabulous performances from especially Ella Raines and Franchot Tone. 
Ella Raines was just an inspired choice of casting. She's just fabulous. She's really dazzling in the film. And she had just been acquired by Universal. She was in one or maybe two films before Phantom Lady, but only one of them had actually hit the screen. And she was definitely a side, side, side character in in Corvette 225. So she was like a girlfriend character that really had very little attention in her very first film. You know, for her to be cast in Phantom Lady and for Joan Harrison to see the potential that Ella Raines had spoke to Joan Harrison's own sense. She was very good at casting. And it also spoke to Ella Raines' talent because she's in almost every scene of this movie. She, you know, once the film gets going after the first 20 minutes or so, she really does take over almost every scene and she carries the film. And she also has to take on a lot of different personalities. So, you know, she is a secretary. She is kind of a girl Friday turned detective. And she's vulnerable and then she becomes quite overpowering. I mean, she really does kind of take um, take over. That scene with Elisha Cook Jr. when she's trying to get information out of him by dangling the prospect of maybe a, a liaison with him. I, I was just blown away by how good she was in that scene. I think that's so, it is so good. I mean, obviously that's, that's the other drumming scene. Right? <laughs> it was uh, Elijah Jr. takes her to this underground kind of jazz session where it's applied that everybody's kind of high. He's high and she has to get right. She's trying to get information from him, but she's trying to seduce him and he's falling for it completely hook, line and sinker. But you see how she's putting on the seduction, but she's also really bothered by the way that she has to act, you know? And so I love the fact that you can see her own sense of kind of self-degradation or at least kind of she's so self-aware. And she's repulsed and she's afraid as well. And yeah, amazing. I will say again, like Joel McRae and foreign correspondent, Alan Curtis was the weak link in this movie. Definitely. Right. And he had played tough guys you know, like tough guys in prior films. So Joan Harrison portrayed this as an example of, you know, I'm going to go against type and this will be a great idea (laughs) where now I'm going to show that he can play soft and romantic, but I just don't think, you know, it comes off very well. Franco Tone, on the other hand, you know, she had been friends with him from the very first days that she came to LA. So she felt comfortable approaching him and asking him, kind of for a favor to appear in this film. And he, I think he took a pay cut because he was interested in doing kind of more experimental work and doing films that were risks for him. And then she told him, you know, look, this is going to go against your type because he's a really quite tortured soul and not a good guy here. Now, at this time, the little progress women have made behind the camera in Hollywood starts to get taken away from them as men come back from World War II. What do you think kind of drove that push to get women out from behind the camera in those power positions? You know, 1945, 46, 47, you see, first of all, these clear messages from the government, from the the war office, which is putting out propaganda, telling women that they need to move over, you know, that men are coming back and that it's time to give them space to take on, to basically return their positions back to them. And since that was a broad cultural message, you know, in terms of giving men back their jobs in general, 
it carries over into Hollywood. But the thing that I think is more of a of an issue within the film industry is just an overall conservatism. And so there's less room for experimentation, a lot more emphasis on convention and family norms and just, you know, marriage that, that most films are kind of headed now toward marriage and toward like the vision of the American dream. And so you have film noir, like noir is surviving, right? Because the, the period of film noir that is in its heyday kind of runs from like 1944 all the way through the mid-1950s. And that genre is the space where you can critique the American dream and you critique capitalism and you can kind of unpack images of a happy family or a happy marriage. And it's one reason why Joan is is treading in that territory. But in a lot of other genres, you see, you know, a lot of, you know, more rigid norms. And what Joan Harrison saw herself, you know, she was unmarried. She would say that she didn't want to get married until the institution itself changed. So she would come out and kind of make a stance where she was very, I don't know whether in those days you would call it feminist, but retroactively she was making kind of radical feminist statements. And so she found herself being almost blacklisted, you know, I, I'd say kind of gray listed by the time you see kind of the late 1940s roll along. And do you think that was mainly because of HUAC and the traditional naming of names and the communist witch hunts? Or do you think because of her sexuality wasn't well-defined and acceptable to the mainstream that that led to that? Right. I think it was both. So I think that if she'd only been kind of outspoken about her politics, just literally just kind of saying that she didn't want to get married and she really supported women in the industry, I think that would have been enough, <laughs> you know? And then on top of that, because she was getting kind of lumped in with people who were called subversives or labeled as left-leaning, that was kind of a second reason that she was gray-listed. Those two things together really gave her a little room. But I think even just the fact that, you know, a lot of times she would stick to her guns in terms of an ending of a movie or the fact that she didn't like a script being changed. And then she would basically be either kicked off the project or she'd walk off the project. And she would come out and say, well, this was because of my gender. You know, a, a man would not have been kicked off the studio lot. And she would be right. But because of this outspokenness, I think that she was beginning to get a bit of a label. But she was able to reunite with Ella Raines and be a, a pioneer in syndicated television just a few years later. Yeah, that's true. And I also should point out that a lot of times when she would speak out, you know, against a studio, she would find a way to rebound, you know, so she was very tactful and somehow she avoided some of the traps of other women who were labeled as being bad women, you know. Difficult, as they say. Difficult, exactly. Difficult, right. She was actually never labeled difficult, but I don't think that she rose as high as she would have, right? She never became like a Jack Warner, whereas we don't really know what would have happened if we'd been able to avoid a double standard. But yeah, so what's interesting is that she does need to leave Hollywood around like 1949, 1950, because it's clear that she's being targeted, particularly by McCarthyism and by HUAC. So she goes first to New York, but then basically she goes to Europe and she stays there until 1952. And when she sees that 
it's possible to come back. She comes back to New York City and she's asked by Ella Raines, who has some funding from Rockefeller, right, from Lawrence Rockefeller, to help her produce Janet Dean Registered Nurse, right? Janet Dean Registered Nurse was the first television series to focus on a nurse. And Ella Raines stars in that. And they do this as a collaboration. They do wonderful, a wonderful job with this series. The fact that it wasn't with a network, that it was syndicated at that time, seemed like a, a very unusual proposition. Yes. Yeah, so it's coming out on different channels across the country at different times. This was both kind of a blessing, you know, because they had a lot of freedom, but it was also a curse because nobody knew where to find it or how to find it. You know, there was a lot of discontinuity with that. So it runs for about 33 episodes and they weren't able to keep it going. And there are only, I think, four or so, you know, just a handful of episodes that you can find out there. I think only two that are on the internet, but it was really ahead of its time in terms of addressing social issues and trying to advance, you know, the cause of professional women. Now, how do roles for producer of a television program differ from a producer of a feature film? To produce a television series, it's very rigorous. It's very difficult. And usually these are four-day cycles where you're kind of putting everything together and rehearsing for two days, and then you're shooting for two days. And so I call this kind of the pioneer phase for Joan Harrison, where she's learning a brand new medium. And there are not that many women in um, TV in the early 1950s. But she's also learning that this is her true métier, that she is actually even better at television producing than she was at film producing, because it's more of a short story form. You know, she's actually looking at short stories to fit into this kind of 24-minute episode format. And also, she's really driving hard at, you know, everything that you do, finding the cast, finding the writers, putting together all the crew and the professionals that it takes, and then that rapid turnaround. So she really worked quite well under pressure, and she thrived with this. So the Janet Dean series, even though it didn't last, it was a great way, it was like a laboratory for her to learn. And then soon after that, she gets a phone call. That is from the old friends. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So across the country in Los Angeles, Alfred Hitchcock and his agent, Lou Wasserman, had been plotting a TV series, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents series. And they decided that the only person to produce that show would be Joan Harrison. And so luckily she had this producing experience and they they bring her on to produce the Alfred Hitchcock Presents series, which begins in 1955. Her role in that, how many different hats did she have to wear to get that series realized and running from week to week? It was really quite incredible. You know, so she's not only searching out source material and just reading everything, but she's handling the legal rights. She's, again, you know, she's doing the locations. She's doing the casting. She's putting together the directors and then making sure that the production itself goes smoothly. And then she's in charge of of the marketing the scoring of everything. But as I talk about in the book, the main reason that she was the perfect person for this job is because she knew what what would kind of certify as an Alfred Hitchcock show. So while many people think that Hitchcock was heavily involved in the series, he was not, you know, hands-on. And he would come in once or twice 
for each episode and kind of give his his green light, you know, at the beginning and at the end. And what they needed was for someone to basically say, yeah, this feels like Alfred Hitchcock. This is something he would approve of. And this is something audiences will recognize as a Hitchcock, you know, in terms of the signature. And she had been working with him for so long. It was in her nature. And did he ever go against any of her decisions that she made? It seems like she had pretty free reign. Yeah, she had very free reign. So there were apparently there, you know, in the 10 years that the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and then the Alfred Hitchcock Hour ran, I think there were maybe four times where after sitting through the final version, he said something like, "Mm, can you do this a different way? Meaning like one shot within the episode. And she knew at that point that she needed to go back. And so it wasn't acceptable. But in terms of butting heads or actual disagreements, there were none. (laughs) And that's over 300 episodes, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, that's right. So Hollywood movies and television are very much of a what have you done for us lately type of situation. So when the work stops coming, how does she handle that? What's funny is she actually produces several different TV series. She's producing a show called Suspense that Hitchcock does, but she actually meets the spy novelist, Eric Ambler, and they wind up getting married in the late 1950s. And so she's experiencing, you know, kind of a different facet of life while she's making the TV series. And she begins to have aspirations of kind of forming a production company where she would produce Eric Ambler would write the scripts and Hitchcock would direct the series. And it's probably no surprise that Hitchcock and Eric Ambler don't get along at all, you know, because Hitchcock is very protective, you know, of her and he sees her as his property, which is something that he did often, you know, with his writers, but especially with women. And so she realizes that actually none of this is going to work out and that if she's going to be married to Eric Ambler, she's going to have to figure out how to be a creative person with Eric Ambler. So as the TV series ends, and it's just it just comes to a natural end in 1965, she and Eric Ambler pitch several projects. And they don't end up working out, and they end up going to Switzerland for tax reasons. And so she goes into kind of semi-retirement, but then soon after that, actually, some of the projects that they had pitched in Los Angeles take off in London. So she ends up working uh, with um, Mike Hammer, right? Hammer Productions. And she does like hammer horror kinds of things. So she has in the early 1970s, a bit of another, a little bit of a professional cycle. But the truth is that, you know, what she finds is, you know, and it wasn't necessarily specific to women. It just was, it didn't help her to be a woman is, as you say, you know, there were new trends and there were new fads and she was considered old Hollywood. So she produced a series for Aaron Spelling, you know, for ABC in the early 1970s, which I think is is impressive and speaks to her, her attempts and her efforts to stay in the game by like 1973. You know, she was finished producing TV and she really does go into retirement. We're talking now as the paperback is getting ready to come out. Were there any new facts or things that you were able to include in the paperback edition? I actually wasn't able to fold anything new into the paperback. You know, and I think that basically the research that I did for the the book, the hardback came out in February 2020, so just about a year and a half ago, everything kind of stands on its own. I've been able to pick up a couple of anecdotes 
from people who who have given me stories about Joan Harrison and Billy Wilder, you know, so it confirms what I already had been finding out that they were together in the 1940s, which really, I think is fascinating. Like, wouldn't you want to be a fly on the wall Um, with Joan Harrison and Billy Wilder in the room together, but nothing new, unfortunately, in terms of like big revelations. I'm really happy to have been able to bring her story to light and I've had a great deal of support since the book has come out. And I, you know, I think that just in terms of the release of, of the book, my biggest, you know, kind of anxiety was around people who were Hitchcock scholars, you know, people who knew, who had been working for decades in the area of Hitchcock. And I, and I didn't know how, how they would receive the book, but I'm really pleased um, that they have found it to be a great contribution to that field. And so, you know, I I couldn't be happier. Dr. Lane, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you again for sharing Phantom Lady with us on Book Talk today. Thank you. Phantom Lady won the 2021 Edgar Award for Best Critical Biographical Work. Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, The Forgotten Woman Behind Hitchcock, which is now in paperback from Chicago Review Press. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced by Stephen Ussery and is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. Any retransmission or reproduction without the express written consent of FM 89.3 WIPL of the Memphis Public Library and Information Center, a department of the City of Memphis, is strictly prohibited.